Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Detectives say the 32-year-old cold case was cracked with the help from a deck of cards. On each card, a different cold case, whether it be a wanted person, a missing person, or an unsolved murder. Well, investigators say a prison inmate saw the victim's face on one of the cold case playing cards and then tipped investigators off. The Bernalillo County Sheriff's Department had the cards made up at the suggestion of a former cold case detective. I'm Tommy Ray. Cold case card program I started here in Polk County has since grown across the U.S. This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the house. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice. Somebody, somewhere, has information that could be investigators' ace in the hole. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 8 of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubasak. And I'm Lori Jennings. And today, we're exploring the Elizabeth Bannister case. She was only 18 years old when she was found brutally murdered. The hardest thing about this case being unsolved is that Elizabeth was killed in a house that was full of people, and yet no one saw, heard, or said anything. It's also a story of family secrets, abuse, and a young woman who was brought up through the foster care system. Be sure to stay with us until the end as we have an update on this case. And as always, our goal is to lay out the timeline in pertinent details that may jog someone's memory. We would love to see the day when there are no faces to put on the cold case playing cards. But until that day comes, we will continue working with Tommy Ray and telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. Help us deal justice for Elizabeth Bannister. This is Episode 8, The Elizabeth Bannister Case, Queen of Diamonds, Indiana Deck. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us to the state of Indiana, where we find something evil in Evansville. Elizabeth Bannister was born in California on September 19, 1981. When she was eight years old, her family moved from Los Angeles, California, and headed to Evansville, Indiana. Welcome to Evansville, a thriving regional city situated on a scenic bend in the Ohio River in southwest Indiana. They say Evansville is the perfect place to live if you want city opportunities with a small town feel. It was also one of the most affordable places in America to live and raise a family. Sounds simple enough, but we'll find out that nothing in Elizabeth's life was simple. During my interview with Elizabeth's youngest sister, Sarah Stewart, I learned just how dysfunctional her family was. These young girls missed out on the normalcy and innocence of a childhood. Her sister, Sarah, explains. Elizabeth was first born, and then my mother had my sister, Rebecca, 
and then me, and then my brother Doug. To clarify, Elizabeth has a different father than the rest of her siblings. So I, I didn't grow up with her like on a level where I grew up with her throughout my life. I was on a level where I was actually in foster care and she was in home. She had some, you know, behavioral issues, um, some anger going on. I don't know exactly why she was put in a group home. So they we were separated. But we still got to see each other, whether it was counseling or visitation. But growing up, it was kind of hard. I had my brother with me and my other sister with me, but I didn't have her. So I didn't really get to spend that time with her, like, spending time with each other every day, growing up every day. This is her fight. So I thought it was just it was just taken from me from the beginning anyway. We always had dreams, like, you know, she had the group home. We would always, you know, become one with each other again. We didn't know when, but whether it's the 18 and she'd get out of a group home and I'd get to go visit her at her house or been that way. Before we unearth the dysfunction and trauma the young girls of this family endured, it's important to treasure the memories of Elizabeth that her sister recalls. She was an amazing person. She was so loving and caring, and she truly was. We always loved to play Ring Around the Rosie. That was, she would play that with me. Rebecca sometimes would be, you know, she never wanted to play too much. But Elizabeth, she always played with me. She helped take care of us, too. There's good things there. I just wish there was a lot more than what I know. Good memories from Elizabeth's life are far and few between. The reality of Elizabeth's young life is actually horrifying. According to Vanderburgh County, Indiana, juvenile court records, when Elizabeth arrived in Indiana, Around the age of eight, it was discovered that a male family member started using Elizabeth as his drinking buddy, and that quickly escalated to sexual abuse. She started bouncing from foster care home to foster care home throughout the Evansville area. My name at the time was Kelly LaFontaine. I was her foster mother, and my cousin was her foster dad. It was in the early 90s when we had her. We had Elizabeth from 12 until 17. She had been bounced around different foster homes, we understand. And she was 12, but she basically had the mindset of an eight-year-old. What I understand from her doctors, things that were done to her, I wouldn't think about doing to a dog. And he told me, he said, you have to understand she'll never have children of her own. And I said, well, why is that? Well, he went into detail about what had happened, what her actual stepdad did to her. She was pretty torn up as a child. And we just tried to give her the love and care and compassion that she would need. And Elizabeth's foster mom, Kelly, has some fond memories. Actually, there was a few rough days, but for the majority of the part, she was a good kid. She had an absolute heart of gold. Me and her would get into it, and and she would look at me and say, I'm sorry, Mom. I should have done that. Please don't send me away again. I said, I'm not going to. It's just something we have to work through. We just work through the problems, you know? You don't know how many Sunday mornings I fought with that kid to get her to go to church and say, you know, you live here on, you know, you live here, you got to do what we do. We go to church on Sunday. That's part of it, you know? 
There was many times she fought us tooth and nail going because she didn't like it, but she went anyway. They come to her and ask her to play the angel in the Christmas play. And I kind of looked at her and I said, Elizabeth, you know, it's going to take practice. It's going to take everything you've got. You're going to have to quit your smoking and quit doing the things that you're doing to play this part. And she goes, Mom, I will. And I said, well, I said, it's not up to me. I said, it's up to you. But I said, you know me and your dad support you 100%. And she played the Christmas angel and she had a ball. By the time she was 12 and entered Kelly and her husband's home, Elizabeth's mom, Rose, was living with her boyfriend, Mark. Kelly immediately disliked him. To be truthful, I mean, I didn't like him from the get-go. And I mean, I liked Rose. Mark would come and get Elizabeth to take her to Rose. Uh, He was like the go-between because we would have to meet them at a certain place. And Mark would come and get the kid because I guess he's the only one that drove. I don't know. I always wondered about him, but I never say anything to Elizabeth or to Sarah because, I mean, he treated Rose okay, I guess. I don't really know, but they seemed okay when they would come to the different, you know, to the regional youth services. But I always wondered about, about Mark. Kelly's instincts were right, according to Sarah. And I think everybody knew that. My mother, I love her to death, but she uh, she tended to be with men who were very abusive towards her and us. My mom just never believed the stories that we would try to tell her when it came to her boyfriends. Mark broke my finger trying to spank me with a belt. Um, Mark was a truck driver, and um, we were made to go with him. We didn't have a choice give my mom a so-called break. He wanted us to take turns, and I would go with him one time, and then my sister would go with him another time. He would take you and your other sister, though, on the truck ride, Uh not Elizabeth, right? It was just you and your other sister? Me and Rebecca, he would take on truck rides. I didn't want to go because of, okay, he's already putting his hands on me. Like, I was scared, you know? I didn't want to go. I I begged my mom not to make me go, and she would make me go. Like, you can't, we wanted to go, me and my sister wanted to go together. And he said no. But he never would let two of us go. He'd only do one, each one of us, one one at a time. Now I know why. Well, when I was in the truck with him, I was eight years old, and he told me he wants her. Those were his words. He wants her. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And I asked him, what do you, what are you talking about? He pointed to what he was talking about. He would point. Only Mark and Sarah were in the truck together. So that means when Mark was pointing and saying her, he was pointing at Sarah. And he said he wants her. As he pointed to what he was talking about. I was scared. I told him no. And he he writes me. Being eight years old, you don't think parents are telling you, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you, yada, yada, yada. You're going to believe it. You know, you're going to believe it because you, you, you love them or you care about them. I never talked about it. The only person I ever told was my sister. So as I got older, when my sister was murdered, me and my adopted mom, I told my adopted mom, I remember we were in the bathroom and she was doing my hair. We were talking and 
I told her. I told her. I told her everything that I just mentioned. And she said, Sarah, why have you not told me this before? I was scared. I was scared like I was going to get beat. I was going to get, nobody would believe me. I was terrified. She reported to the authorities. She did call them, and she reported everything that I told her. They spoke with me, and then they spoke back to her. According to authorities, there is nothing that they can do because they don't know where it happened. Given that I was in a semi-truck, you know, one of those ones with a bed in it, you know, because you go over state lines, or I couldn't verify that it happened here at one point. Because not every time, I, I mean, it, it, it happened twice. So, before we got taken again. So, I'm not sure, like, where it happened. I don't know any of that. And because we don't know that information, they're saying that there's nothing they could do. There's even more shocking information to come involving Mark. Their mother, Rose, was guilty of having terrible tastes in men. But one thing Sarah does insist upon was, despite it all, she loved her mother. I mean, my mother, I love her dearly, and I will always love her. I don't blame her for anything. She, you know, she bought us what she could. She fed us. She had a bed for us. She had bedrooms. Like, she had all that. It was just her health conditions were wearing in on her, and we were molested and abused in the home. But it was never by her. She had a lot of health problems. Rose's health continued to deteriorate. And as Elizabeth was turning 17, Rose was able to get custody back of Elizabeth. Elizabeth moved in with her mom and Mark, and she helped care for her ailing mother. In 1997, Elizabeth and Sarah's mother passed away. Elizabeth was there, I guess. She found her body, I think, is what happened. She had emphysema. When they did the autopsy, they found out that she had emphysema. And they claim that she died of emphysema. Well, I mean, how old was she when she passed away? She was how old? I think she was in her 30s. Elizabeth was not yet 18 when her mom died. So after she lost her mother, she was briefly put into a group home until she aged out of the system. And then she moved in with Mark. That's right. She moved in with the same man who took Sarah on those truck driving runs. And this is where it comes with when I said I was angry with Elizabeth because she knew. She knew what happened to me. And she started living with him when she got the group home. Elizabeth and Mark weren't just roommates either. He asked her to marry him is what she told me. And I thought it was immoral. I, I thought it was wrong. He was engaged to my mother. And I told her if she did, um, I would never speak to her again. And... That I, I hated her for it. And it was some words that I live to regret to this day. But if we could back up, you were 14 at the time. You just lost your mom. And here's your older sister. You're probably a little confused living and going to get married with your mom's ex-fiance. So that had to have been confusing for you, too, as a 14-year-old. It, it was very confusing, but I think the anger really set in. And after all the things that he had put me and my sisters through, when, when she had told me that, reverted to, I think, anger. And I hate to say it, but from, I don't even know if that's what it is, but kind of some hatred. Um, I don't necessarily say I hated her. I never hated her. Uh, I love her to death. Even to this day, I still love her. 
And it was just one of those things where she lived together. Like, she lived with him. And I don't know if that's because she had nowhere else to go when she got off the group home. I never really got those. I was so young, I never really got to ask those kind of questions. You know, like, why are you living with him? Like, you know, after all he's put us through, why do you live with him? Mark and Elizabeth had moved into a house on Washington Avenue in Evansville, Indiana. This house was not your typical house. It was, um, it was actually a house, and the lady that owned it, she turned into these, the bedrooms into apartments. There was three bedrooms in there and in the basement. The owner of the home actually lived in the basement. And there were three rooms that she rented out. Elizabeth and Mark lived in apartment C. So like little studios. However, there was only one bathroom in the whole house. That bathroom was in the hallway, and everybody used that bathroom. I honestly feel, you know, she, she lived with him because she didn't have anywhere else to go when they emancipated her. Even though Elizabeth was not in the foster care system any longer, she still kept in touch with her foster mom, Kelly. As a matter of fact, in December of 2000, Kelly had finally adopted a child of her own, and Elizabeth called her to make plans to come see the baby. She said, I heard you had a baby. I said, yeah. And she said, can I come and see it? And I said, well, sure you can. And she said, when can I come? I said, anytime you want to. She goes, can I come Christmas? And I said, well, absolutely. And she said, I'll give you my phone number. And you call me the week of Christmas. And I will come and spend the night with you and see the baby. I said, that's fine. I called numerous times. And she never answered the phone. She never did anything. And then New Year's, we did the same thing. She never answered the phone. She never called. Now, she never got to see my son, and I do regret that, but there was no way of getting a hold of her. Elizabeth had started out the new year in 2000 fighting with her sister, Sarah, and avoiding her foster mom, Kelly. So neither one of them was really sure what was going on in her life at that time. They were about to get an update they were not expecting. January 20th, 2000. That evening, a friend loaned Elizabeth money to use the payphone. Keep in mind, this was before everyone had cell phones. It's a little after midnight. At Elizabeth's house, people had gathered around to drink and hang out. All seemed normal until the discovery of Elizabeth's body. The friend who had lent Elizabeth money for the call earlier hadn't heard from her since. He went to her apartment to check on her, and there he found the bloody crime scene. Meanwhile, 14-year-old Sarah was at home sleeping, and she was awoken by a nightmare. Well, it was a dream. It didn't show any face. It was just kind of like a black, like a shadowy figure, and I could see a knife. And now, this isn't how it happened, but in my dream, she was running, and she was in the woods, okay? And she got stabbed in my dream. It was like one stab, and I like snapped out of it. I woke up, and I looked at the time. It was like 10, I don't know, 103, 104 a.m., and I went back to sleep. Around 1 o'clock a.m., the police arrived at the crime scene where Elizabeth lied dead. The murder weapon was nowhere to be found. 
The three people who were in the apartment at the time of the stabbing said they saw nothing nor heard anything. Someone was apparently watching Madlock. I don't know if it's an older TV show um, at the time on the couch. And then another person supposedly was in the bathroom. Now my thought was, okay, so why didn't someone hear her scream? I mean, you're going to scream, right? Like, when you get attacked, you're going to scream. Um, you're going to scream for help or you're going to fight back. When daylight came, Kelly started getting phone calls. Uh, my friend called me and said, what was Elizabeth's last name? I told her, okay, bye. She called me back. She goes, how old was Elizabeth? And I said, you know, 18, okay, bye. And I finally said, okay, what is going on? Why are you wanting to know this? Is Elizabeth hurt or something? And she said, Elizabeth was killed last night. And then about 30 minutes later, the police come and knocked on my door and had me go down and identify the body because they found my name and my phone number in her address book. Oh, my gosh. Kelly, you had to be the one to identify her? Yes, I did. And she had the name and add phone number because she yes. was supposed to be seeing you? Oh. Yes. Oh, yes. my gosh. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. That It's okay. It's just something I try to put behind me and go on because, I mean, there was nothing any more difficult I ever had to do. Coroner said that, uh, if they were smart, they would have stopped with one stabbing because the first one that they got got her aorta and killed her instantly. They just con- continued stabbing her and until she was dead or what they thought was dead, but they didn't realize the first one killed her. Sarah had gotten up that morning and went to the school bus stop. I had walked to the bus stop, get on the bus. This lady pulled up in her car. And she asked me to get in, and I said, no, because, you know, everybody's taught us getting cars with strangers, right? So she asked me, do you not remember who I am? And I said, no. And apparently she was a foster case worker that I had worked with prior when I was younger. And she said, I need to take you home. And when I got home, there were cop cars. And the cops were there, and they told me that I may want to sit down. And I looked at them and told them I didn't want to sit down. And I told him, I said, my sister, she's dead, isn't she? And, of course, they asked how I knew. Mind you, I'm 14. I, I couldn't be a suspect of any kind because, I mean, I'm at home. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sleeping, and that was the first thing I thought. And these people are going to think I'm crazy. But right. I told I had a dream. I said, can I please go back to school? Or can I please go to school? And they said, Sarah, I think it's best if you stay home. And I'm like, no, I want to go to school. I don't want to be here. Went to school, and it really hit me when my teachers had um, little bluebirds for me. And there's a little black bluebird. When I got into the classroom, she gave me it, and then all my classmates wrote cards for me. And um, it really it really hit me hard, and, and then I was like, I just want to go home. Of course, Mark was the first suspect. But the police quickly cleared him as he had an alibi. He was at work. But most people are not convinced. You're not going to make believe he didn't have something to do with it. Because I know Elizabeth well enough to know that if you come at her with a knife, she's going to scream. And nobody in that place heard, you know, heard her scream. Just amazing. It was amazing to me. 
Now, it's important to note here that Kelly, Elizabeth's foster mom, never knew Elizabeth and Mark were living together and had a relationship. So for her to think Mark was involved without even knowing this information that the two were together, I had to question her about that. I did not know that they were living together. I had no idea. Did you automatically think Mark was involved? Yes. You did? What made Automatically. Because the type of person Mark was. They say that he is no longer a suspect because he had an alibi and they checked his alibi and his time clock said he was at work. You never know. Did he have somebody clock in for him? Did he have somebody say, hey, pay him? You know what I mean? Like, there's so many things that could work around that. From what I'm told is there, there was no signs of forced entry. So it was somebody close to her. Somebody who could get in and out whenever they wanted. Because you have to go into the house and go up the stairs to get into the apartment. It's not just you go at a house door, boom, you're inside. Two doors you go through. This was someone close. This was someone she knew or someone she trusted. It had to be somebody in the home or in the building or outside the front. And what they're telling me, um, as far as, like, sleep, this seemed to be a, a crime of passion. This was not your, you know, just a victim of any me, my mom. Police also later found a letter inside Elizabeth's bedroom that was addressed to her sister, Sarah. So they brought it to me in a, in a box of belongings. And they hand me the belongings, but then they handed me the letter. It was really short and sweet. It literally all it said was, I'm sorry, Sarah, and I love you. Sorry. <laughs> um, and then I think the worst thing that came across my mind was I didn't get to say it back. And I think that's what I said when I read it. Uh, I said to my mom, who was my adopted mother at the time, and I told her I looked at her, so I didn't get to say it back. <laughs> like, I didn't get to look at her and say, I love you and I'm sorry. <laughs> like, and uh, it just, it hurt. You know, so it's something that I've lived today. I lived my day with, um, never say, you know, horrible things like that to people because you never know, you know, when their last day is. Elizabeth's family eventually flew her body to California, where she was buried alongside her mother. More than two decades later, there were no answers, no justice for Elizabeth, only speculations. When this happened, there were no advocates to fight for answers for Elizabeth. Sarah was only 14 years old. When Sarah became an adult, she wanted to do her own investigation and found that people who live next door to Elizabeth still live there. And they told Sarah some interesting information. The guy that lived there, he had told me that night he heard screaming and yelling outside. And he had looked outside the door and Mark and her got hit, got into a huge argument. And she, I guess, went and used a payphone at some point, called a cab, and the cab driver that supposedly went, apparently was notified. And when they interviewed and talked to him, he said he went to pick her up, but nobody came out. Like he honked and honked mm. and nobody came out. From the time of her death, you know, that short period of time, 
black people, from our knowledge, from what we gather and what has been told that she had contact with, was Mark. Sarah is determined to keep telling her sister's story and searching for answers. I will never give up. Uh, I don't care if I'm 60, 70, 80. If I live to be 100, I will never give up. This this will never be, um, to me, um, it'll never be closed. To me, it's not a cold case. As Sarah searches for her sister's killer, she's comforted by a song written by Danielle and Elizabeth Nelson. Tell me what does it look like in heaven? Is it peaceful? Is it free like they say? It reminds Sarah that her sister is in a better place. Rest in peace, Elizabeth Bannister. Now for a quick update on this case. The supposed break in the case was revealed in a recent podcast that was released in August called Where the Bodies Are Buried. Yeah, this is Phil Chalmers. I'm a longtime uh, 35-year profiler, police homicide trainer, true crime writer. And uh, my latest venture, uh, we're one one episode deep in a, a podcast called Where the Bodies Are Buried. What I do, what my goal is now is I interview serial killers and, you know, I know they've all killed more people than the police know about. It's kind of been my mission is to get them to confess to unsolved murders. You're going to hear several podcast episodes on my podcast where we, we do get confessions and we do try to solve the cases and find bodies and all that. So doing what I do, William Clyde Gibson claims he's killed 33 people. And he's sitting on death row for three murders. So there's 30 unsolved. And I just said, you know, let's let's take one at a time. Clyde, where are most of the victims from? Where do your victims come they from? They are a mixture of everything, Phil. It's just dumb luck. It was bad luck for them. Well, a lot of them, like the Elizabeth Bannister, she was just, just happened to be one of the unlucky ones, you know. Just a stupid thing of the way we've met. How did you meet her? She was walking down the street and I picked her up and took her home. She had just a regular little house there. That was a confession. He just said, well, I killed Elizabeth Bannister in Evansville, Indiana. I'm like, okay. So, you know, when that first happens, you know, I don't know about the case. So I quickly whip out my phone or computer and Google it. Sure enough, Elizabeth Bannister, 18, was murdered 20 years ago in 2000. He definitely could have done it. A little bit of details from him and then just compare it with media reports and and it really matched up. So, you know, we just go from there and we try to get as much confession and much detail as possible. And then we and then the next big thing is trying to work with local law enforcement. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So they went up and swabbed him on death row and they sent his DNA out. Again, here's Sarah. I get lots of people reaching out to me, you know, media, my radio station, I guess heard the podcast. I get so many people reaching out asking me how I, what I feel and how I think about this and what I believe. And I'm like, I don't. I don't know. I would be angry if he come out and it wasn't him and he was like, oh, I just lied. But at first, I thought there was a little hope there, you know, like, okay, maybe, just maybe, you know, this is true. But then part of me, it's really hard to really believe it because it's like, I want to believe it. It's just really hard to think that this guy did it. Now, I did speak with the guy. You know, he apparently claimed he picked her up on the side of the road by her house. 
and he paid her for sex and uh, dropped her off, followed her upstairs, and he killed her. When he told me that he paid her for sex, it really hit me a little hard because I have been told by people in the past when it, she was, you know, probably when I opened it back up, the very beginning of uh, 2004 or five, I think I opened it up, five. You know, people reached out to me and was telling me that, you know, she was prostituting. Like, she was a prostitute. Like, she was selling her body for sex. Like, they knew that of her. Like, they were her friend. And I didn't want to believe it. I didn't. And I was like, no, no, she would never do that. She would never do that. Okay? Well, then this guy, Clyde, says, oh, I paid her for sex. You know, I kind of put two and two together. I'm like, maybe she was. That it's going to take a while for DNA to come back. It could take three weeks. It could take a month. So you will have an answer one way or the other. Yes. I mean, one way or the other. We have reached out to the Evansville Police Department to interview them for this episode, and we have yet to hear back from them. We will update you if we do. This case is so tragic on so many levels. Aside from a woman being murdered, which, by the way, is always horrific and tragic, this is also a story of a young woman and her siblings who never got to experience the innocence of childhood, which is so sad. As far as authorities know, Elizabeth was being abused since she was at least eight years old. It's just so tragic and so hard to even wrap your brain around that. Exactly. And then on top of that, you know, being tossed from foster home to foster home. I mean, she had Kelly and her husband took care of her for at least like five or six years. But besides that, it's just like she was tossed from home to home and then to group homes. And then she ends up in a relationship with someone who was previously involved with her own mother. But you can't blame her for that. I mean, she never learned a foundation of right or wrong. I mean, I just, I feel like she's a victim. She's a victim. She's a victim completely and totally all the way through this. You know, you can't really say she made a bad mistake. This was 100%. Mark made that bad mistake, not her. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So let's run down this list of suspects, though, because really publicly there are no known suspects. Um, The police haven't gotten back to us yet. If they do want to give us some information on that. We haven't yet heard back from them. So let's just go over what we do know and let's talk about the suspects in hopes that someone may have some information that can bring justice for Elizabeth. Mark's at the top of the list for me. I don't know about you. Absolutely. This is just, to me, it's so, being from the outside looking in, you can see what Mark was doing. He's an abuser. I mean, this is just so typical of somebody who went into the foster care system and is vulnerable. And men like this know vulnerable girls and women and they seek it out. They find it. They know how to get what they want. And unfortunately, she fell into that. And that's one of those things. I think we have to do a better job at protecting people in foster care. You know, it's like going back to the nature shows. You know, you see like there's a zebra or whatever, and there's lots of other families around them. And they say that even in nature, they don't attack something that has other people around them. You know, you have a child and, and this this girl that's been sexually abused since she was, you know, eight years old and she's in foster care. You can just see it dripping off her that she's vulnerable. And it's so sad that there's somebody out there that spots that and knows it instinctually. 
Yeah, and that is just so, so sad for me. But he does have an alibi from what they say, and the police have cleared them. Police have actually cleared everyone that was in the apartment or that home that night. But if we go back and say that Mark was working that night, let's think about the time of the year was 2000. And, you know, Sarah brings up a good point. You know, did somebody cover for him? Did he maybe show up late for work? It just seems like they're, she's not really sure even the alibi sticks. But again, we don't have information to verify that. But he does have a, an alibi. Which brings us back to the serial killer, the podcast, and William Clyde Gibson. He says that he saw Elizabeth on the side of the road, and that's where he picked her up. Which would make sense if she used that phone call to call a cab, which is rumored that she called a cab. So she would be waiting outside for somebody to pick her up. So the money that she borrowed from the dude in the house was to go outside and call a cab. Right. That is the rumor. And then if you come in with this serial killer that says that he confessed to killing her, that, hey, she was out at the side of the road waving me down, kind of makes sense that that could happen. The thing that would come to fruition is he does say something interesting in his interview with Sarah was that, there was a broken mirror. So only the police would know that. They confirm there's a broken mirror? We haven't talked to the police to confirm that or not. I almost feel like though those this is what worries me about stuff like that is how many houses have a mirror? Everybody's got a mirror. That is something broad and like, oh, hey, there's a broken uh, table there where I can, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'm still thrown by people that confess you know, falsely to murders. It's still, it's just absolutely crazy to me. It's a power trip for these serial killers. I mean, that's what he says. I think he's on a power trip and trying to, you know, be this power trip person that's just admitting to certain things that may or may not be true. Of course, this could be a false confession or the fact that, like Sarah said, when William Clyde Gibson said he paid Elizabeth for sex, that really made her stop and think. There could be some truth to that since none of this information was ever made public. These are all recent updates, and they're currently awaiting DNA results. And then finally, I mean, could it be an an ex-boyfriend or or somebody that was just at the house partying that night and just saw an opportunity to murder somebody? I mean, it really could be anybody. Well, unfortunately, you know, somebody that's in the foster care system that's been sexually abused generally has just had their foundation rocked from day one. And so they're in so many vulnerable positions that it could be so many different people. But what we have to do is just have faith that the system will work this out and that rise to the top. Whoever did this, we will find them out. And there's somebody, and like we always say, there's always somebody that knows something. So hopefully what will happen is that something will change in somebody's heart and they'll want to come forward and they'll want to bring justice for Elizabeth. Exactly. So we hope if you're listening to this and if you know something that you will see that Elizabeth never got to have anyone fight for her in life, even as a young child, Nobody did the right thing. And perhaps Sarah does talk about her mother loving them and and them loving her mother. And maybe her mother didn't have the skills or maybe her mother was abused. We don't know the story of that. But nobody ever fought for Elizabeth while she was alive. And if you know any information, maybe it's time that somebody could step forward and fight for this young woman that has lost her life so early in life that we can give those answers and somebody could fight for her now and bring justice and answers to this family. Justice and dignity. Dignity. To Elizabeth. That's something that she's never had. And, you know, I think it's important to just always understand that not everybody's been given the innocence of a childhood. Not everybody's been given that leg up on life and that no matter what, and you and I have talked about this 
consistently after doing this podcast and seeing if somebody is killed, they deserve the same attention. I don't care what life circumstance or, and I don't care where they came from. Everything in our power should be used to find out who did this and bring justice for Elizabeth. So if you know any information, anybody out there that is listening has any information about Elizabeth's murder, please call the Indiana State Police Tips Hotline at one 800 453 4756. And again, you can remain anonymous. Just tell them what you know. Thank you for being a part of this. And please join us next time on Dealing Justice. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Dealing Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubasak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent, Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app and tell your friends to subscribe. And join us next time on Dealing Justice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.